Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tolman. Welcome back everyone to Talk Dizzy to Me. For the first time ever, I am flying solo today. This is Dr. Abby Ross, vestibular physical therapist and neuroclinical specialist, but I'm missing so very dearly, my co-host, Dr. Danielle Tate, also a vestibular physical therapist. Don't worry, she'll be back for the next episode. This is literally the only episode I'm letting her miss. And the reason that I was okay with it is because I have two of my old colleagues on the show today, Kellyanne Arnella and Elizabeth Martori, and they are occupational therapists. Today's topic is all about vision rehabilitation. And let me tell you, the number of patients I said... Liz, Kellyanne, I need you to see this patient. And then the patient's like, oh my gosh, they're great. And they get better. That's why I'm having these two on the show. We know that a lot of our patients with vestibular dysfunction also have visual issues. And, you know, not everything is in our wheelhouse. Sometimes we have to pass the baton off to another discipline. So in this case, occupational therapy. Kellyanne, Liz, thank you for coming to the show. Thanks for having us, Abby. We're so happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yay. So first, let's get into a little bit of background about you both. I don't think all occupational therapists know the specialty that you two know. So tell us a little bit about how you came to treat this type of patient population. All right. So I've been an occupational therapist since 2007. And since that time, I've been working with neurological diagnoses. Um, I was a staff therapist at NYU and eventually made my way to their vision clinical specialist um, and their outpatient in 2015. So I was doing that for about six or seven years. And then most recently, I moved to an outpatient closer to home, still NYU, um, and I'm still treating neurological diagnoses and vision diagnoses and um, concussion and vestibular dysfunction. So during my time as the vision clinical specialist, I was fortunate enough to work with neurooptometrists and neurootologists, I have to say that right, um, who really recognized the importance of how vision impacted a person's function or impacted their symptoms. And so, you know, sometimes the patient wasn't able to tolerate the vestibular therapy right off the bat, and they needed to work on creating a stable binocular vision in order for the vestibular therapies to then work. Um, as we're aware, balance is comprised not only of the vestibular system, but also of the visual system and the proprioceptive system. So I think we were really lucky to work with a group that believed that that was really important. And so that's how I came to be. Great. And Kellyanne, what's your story? So pretty similar in a way to Liz. Um, I also work at NYU. I've worked there since 2010 as an occupational therapist. I've worked with the neurological population um, my whole career. and I am now the neurological uh, rehabilitation clinical specialist for the outpatient OT department at NYU. Um, we, you know, we're really lucky to work in a um, department that was um, supporting of, you know, complex vision issues uh, from the get go. So our inpatient um, training really is is you know heavily focused on that neurological vision component which I think laid the groundwork for anyone who sort of transitions through inpatient and outpatient uh, throughout NYU. Um, Working with Liz as the uh, vision clinical specialist, as well as some of our other colleagues, um, really helped to train and help us focus our our skills on, you know, the, the, you know, vestibular components of vision, complex vision, uh, vision issues related to concussion, um, and you're right, not every OT does this sort of heavy work on, on vision. Um, in our training as occupational therapists in school, they are taught um, basic screening um, and how to recognize visual issues. However, this the depth to which I think we practice, at least in our clinic, um, is not necessarily taught um, in the, you know, in 
in the um, school level. Um, there is a focus in OT practice for low vision, um, but the neurological components, which we work with more often, um, is certainly a skill that's learned where you're being trained or where you're working. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, similar paths, but I think uh, you're right. Working in a, in a place where other clinicians recognize that this is a thing and this can help patients is certainly key. And with that being said, Kellyanne, you were touching on this a little bit, but as other clinicians, whether we're a vestibular physical therapist, a neurologist, an ENT, whatever we are, where we're seeing patients with vestibular dysfunction, what clues are we listening for in a patient's history that might tell us, mm, maybe we need to refer this patient to a vision therapist? So typically we, we would like to really kind of delve into a person's visual history. Everything from the type of corrective lenses that they wear or they don't wear as prescribed to any history of visual deficits, even as a child. So oftentimes there's, when there's a decompensation in one of the systems, whether it's, you know, one of the systems relative to balance, like the vestibular, you know, they have now a new onset of a vestibular disorder or, you know, a proprioceptive disorder, some sort of neuropathy. Um, there, there's this over-reliance on, say, the visual system or the other systems that help. And so we want to, even if there was an issue with their visual system as a child, sometimes they were able to improve on it or they were able to use therapy to make it stronger. And then once another system has decompensated and now they have this over-reliance on an already weakened system, we see that it's it's not helping them, it's not supporting them. So we do want to take a look at and, and talk to them, get a really in-depth medical history. Um, sometimes we ask patients to fill out a questionnaire um, to ask about their symptoms. We're looking for complaints of headaches or eye strain, pain, difficulty tolerating close work, um, obvious things like maybe double vision. Um, we want to ask them about those things. Um, that might be some of the red flags that we would see. As silly as it sounds, I often go pretty deep into how they use their prescriptive lenses, if they have prescriptive lenses, um, if they have trouble using them. Um, typically, this comes from people who have been prescribed progressive lenses, but um, not always the case. Um, so often we hear a patient saying, you know, the doctor recommended I upgrade my glasses, but I, you know, I have the prescription sitting in my drawer and I haven't gotten to it yet. And um, I really think that's an important step for us to make sure that they are starting from, you know, the, their baseline, their true baseline of what their best corrective vision is. Because if we're looking at, you know, them without that best corrective vision, we're kind of... Um, we might be missing a, a good component of the picture. Um, any sort of visual or vision uh, or eye surgery, like cataracts or um, something along those lines, it's really important to get that history as well. Um, this way we can see, you know, um, if there's any sort of differences or changes. Um, if, and like I said before, just if they are, um, you know, if we're testing them at their true baseline. Yeah, so I think in every in every healthcare provider's office, I am I'm, I'm pretty sure that the history is one of the major players. I mean, maybe not if like you broke your radius or something, maybe the x-ray is the telling key, right? But at least in this world, the history is so important. So we just talked about some of the complaints that you might hear from a patient, what about more functional complaints? Like, would they say things, for example, um, I can't read a document on my computer, or I have an issue reading a menu in the dark, or I don't know, what are some more uh, functional limitations that a patient might report in their history, or as you're asking them questions, aside from the symptoms themselves? 
Sure. So they might report something like they're having a difficult time tolerating their phone where they used to read pretty often on their phone or for um, a significant amount of time. And if they're having difficulty, you know, tolerating looking um, not only at their phone, but a computer screen, um, an iPad screen, our whole lives are screens these days. So um, could be any of those things. Um, another one I hear a lot is when they're transitioning from different distances. For example, something like their phone to, um, or, you know, computer screens, you know, different, at different distances from them, someone who's working um, and having to, you know, alternate scanning between a paper and a, and a, a larger screen. Um, you know, if they can't track something, if they're having a hard time, they get headaches, um, just doing something simple that they did before or that they felt was simple um, is now more difficult. Um, another interesting one is when people are driving and they get pretty symptomatic, um, or even as the passenger in the car that they are becoming more symptomatic. But I don't think, you know, before I had this skill of this vision, right, the vision rehab, um, you don't realize how much your vision actually plays a role in all of this. Um, and as the scene, scenery is kind of driving by you, um, you know, your, your brain is still processing all of that. Um, those are you know, those are some of the big ones I might see scanning in a grocery store, trying to find an item on a shelf that's a little bit more um, overwhelming or visually busy. Um, that's something that we might hear. I'm not sure, Liz, if you have any other ones. Yeah, I would. I completely agree. I think, you know, visually complex environments. So often I'll hear, you know, and it's probably, you know, partly vision and some auditory, but there's the movement of people or if you're in a crowded place, if you're on public transportation, um, you know, all of those things give us a sense of where we are in space, obviously, from a vestibular standpoint. But it's also from a visual standpoint, it's giving us a frame of reference of where we are in relationship to other people. So sometimes, yes, a lot of times we see close up work, right? Eye strain, headaches, things with reading devices, um, you know, prolonged use or transitioning those focal distances. And then also at the distance, like Kellyanne said, driving, being in visually complex areas, um, busy environments, things with a lot of, you know, stimulation, not just necessarily visual, but can be auditory or just movement in itself. Right. So when it comes to visually stimulating environments, that's certainly something that we look at and treat in vestibular rehab from a physical therapy standpoint, usually using um, habituation to those types of environments. So I want to get into more of the intervention and treatment techniques, especially around those more visually stimulating environments a little bit later. Let's back up though and start at the actual evaluation part of it. So what does an evaluation for vision rehabilitation look like? So we always start with a patient's acuity um, with their best corrected lenses, if they bring them um, or what they're using, using regularly. That's your foundation. So that's gonna tell you something right off the bat and be able to, if you need to refer them to an optometrist or an ophthalmologist in order to get their best corrected vision because we want to start there. Um, then we do look at their ocular motor skills of smooth pursuit, which is the eye's ability to follow a moving target and keep it in focus throughout the movement. Um, a saccade or a saccade, depending on who you talk to, um, but that's our most frequently used eye movement. We make 150,000 of these eye movements every single day. That's when our eyes jump from one target to another. So in these visually complex or dynamic environments, often that's what our eyes are doing. They're jumping from one target to another. When we read, that's what happens. Our eyes grab a word or a group of words and they jump from word or group of words to the next along the line on the page. We're looking at convergence, how the eyes work together up close. So how they're moving sort of down and in. We are looking at their eye alignment. So there are six muscles that move each eye in all the different directions that they go and the eyes have to work together. So we wanna make sure that the eyes within the, the, the orbit, the sock, eye socket are lined up so that they can meet each other in space. We're looking at accommodation, their eyes ability to visually focus on something. So not only, you know, 
acuity allows you to see something clearly, but there's also another mechanism in our eyes. There's a lens inside the eyeball that changes shape in order to help refine or to focus clearly on an image, whether you're looking at it at, it at different focal distances, up close or at a distance. Um, we're also looking at depth perception. We're looking to make sure both eyes are, you know, whatever the eyes are seeing that the brain is processing, that it can create a three-dimensional image. And then sometimes we're also looking for, um, less frequently, but visual fields, depending on a person's history or their complaints. Kellyanne, did I miss anything? No, I just like to emphasize, you know, I explain each step of the evaluation or the screen to the patients, just like it was pretty much spelled out for us exactly what each skill does functionally. Um, because it's often, you know, I can, I, I get patients that come in and they're like, oh, I can, but I can see clearly. And it's like, well, that's great. But we're actually, we want to see how their eyes are moving, um, how they're working together to view and process the world around them. But also with some skills, we're looking at how they're working individually as well. Um, you know, there's a few skills I'm thinking of convergence lists that are, you know, that kind of, it's a few skills together. And if one of those three components are sort of out of touch or a little bit, um, you know, in deficit, then it's going to make that, that, that bigger skill kind of fall apart. So um, we kind of, we look at each, each one individually, but then we also look at them together um, to see how, again, how the brain, how the, how your eyes are really processing the world around you and how they're, um, you know, contributing to your overall, you know, vestibular, you know, your vestibular health. I just want to add one thing, you know, sometimes people do go and they do get these things diagnosed or they get them looked at. And we have to remember that the testing often is performed in a static environment, right? And so there's no other stimulation or duress or stress that the patient is under. So sometimes these skills can work or they can force them to work for that short period of time, but it's over a prolonged period of time where they're having trouble. They can't sustain that stable binocular vision. Or once they start moving, the binocular vision start, sort of falls apart or decompensates. And so I think as, as therapists and having done this for you know a number of years now, we're able to bring that piece of it to the table and to kind of think critically that even if something seems slightly out of the norms or very close to the norms, and the patient still has these complaints that we're thinking about it holistically. Yeah, very, very good point. So a takeaway there, if you're a patient listening, is if you're seeing anyone for these types of complaints and symptoms, if they're only testing you when you're in a closed room, nothing's moving around, your head is still like not appropriate. That's not real life. So the other point that you made, which I think we forget because we can't see, your eyes are controlled by muscles, six of them each. You know, it's not a bicep you can see or you can't check your abs out in the mirror. You can't see what's going on behind your eyes. But it makes sense that we would have issues because these are muscles just like everything else in our body. Not everything else in our body, but you guys know what I mean. Um, when we talk about these different aspects of evaluation, obviously every patient's going to present a little bit differently, but can you tell us, link us from what you find as abnormal in evaluation to what you're going to then recommend for intervention? So I think uh, we, we did sort of touch on this a little bit, but we do itemize in a way, our evaluation or our screening tools um, to kind of really build that framework for a very thorough treatment plan. Um, you know, for example, if someone does show an impairment in saccades, um, we will address that through our treatment plan, right? Um, we really do try to um, do a combination approach of more remedial tasks as well as compensatory strategies um, in order to maximize and, and, and really see or develop a holistic plan. Um, but I think we rely heavily on our screening tools and the results from our screening. Um, and those really give us the clues to kind of, you know, run with the treatment plan from there. 
Um, like Liz said, sometimes when you start treating the patient, you do see that the skills might sort of falter a bit when you're adding or um, you're loading the exercise with more components and demands. Um, and of course, then we're kind of adjusting our treatment plan there. Um, we might reduce a demand, we might add in a different demand that kind of um, addresses what we're seeing. Um, but our, our screening, um, thankfully, you know, Liz helped develop it. Um, the sort of framework that we use um, really kind of lays out our treatment plan really nicely for us. Um, anything you want to add, Liz? Yeah, I would say that, you know, traditionally we you know, a lot of these patients come in pretty symptomatic and it's very discouraging and they're in a lot of pain and things are very frustrating. So, you know, I think Kellyanne would agree. We're oftentimes giving them strategies or compensatory methods as far as like reducing screen time, um, increasing the proprioceptive feedback to their body. So, you know, not doing things, you know, sitting in a chair, make sure your feet are flat on the floor, you know, good postural control, maybe even your head is is supported against the back of a chair um, when you're doing these things. Or, I mean, I've had patients that I've started treatment lying down and supine um, because then their whole body is receiving some feedback about where they are in space and I can kind of isolate and target just the eye movements. Um, and from there, then we progress to things like sitting, standing, standing on balance boards, walking, jumping. Um, you know, I've had some, a lot of fun with some of these patients, um, but that's generally how, you know, we would progress it. And like Kellyanne said, then we would also load potential cognitive demands, other stimulation, auditory demands, being in different spaces. Sometimes people um, have trouble you know, in closed spaces or open spaces, and we'll try to simulate or put them into those environments as much as we can. Um, so we would, you know, when we're working on the skill, ideally you want to work on the skill first. So if it's a saccade and you want your eyes to move accurately from one target to another, and that's the goal. And once the patient can achieve that without symptoms, we're going to then add and load that activity to see if we can challenge it. See if that visual skill still works despite other demands on their body or their brain. And then we progress it that way. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's a, between both of your answers, I feel like we got a good picture. My question is, so in vestibular rehab, let's say um, a patient's having difficulty walking when they're talking to their partner down the street or something. Well, that might be an exercise that we do then. We want to desensitize them to that environment. We might not go right to Times Square walking with your partner, looking back and forth, but um, you know, we start more basic and build upon it. Is it the same idea in vestibular re or vision rehab, I should say, where you start you know, more basic and then you're building and it's more like a graded exposure type of habituation or desensitization? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said before, you're going to start on the skill. You want to make sure that the skill works and that they can perform that skill, whether it's convergence, getting their eyes to team up, you know, properly. And then from there, we're going to have them read for, you know, a certain amount of time. They're going to do close work. Um, if we're working on saccades, maybe it's letter charts. Their eyes are jumping from one target to another, or they're reading a short passage with big font, and they're looking for a particular word. And they're doing that in a quiet space um, with their best correction, with good lighting, all those things that are important. And then we're going to move it to a more dynamic, you know, environment where there's other people talking as if they were in a restaurant reading a menu, that type of a thing. So we do absolutely grade it that way. Same way, you know, we want them, we want the skill to work despite whatever else is going on around them. So often I feel like my patients get a little, they're a little apprehensive to um, the compensatory things that we recommend, um, which, you know, I, I think it's important to add that some of the things that Liz was talking about before, the screen modifications, um, you know, an on-screen line guide, a paper line guide, right? These are all things that 
they're not, you know, we call them compensatory because it's sort of guiding that skill that you're working on, but it actually is working on the skill and it's just taking a little bit of that weight away from it. So it's one of those, it's sort of like a, a double benefit, right? So it's making the task easier, but it's also kind of working on the skill. Um, and I think that's one thing, you know, people are always like, is this something I'm going to have to use forever? Or I'm going to have to need forever. And I'm like, well, no, but um, you know, I don't have a vestibular issue, but I use a lot of those things in my daily life. You know, um, beeline reader is something I think of that I have on, on my computers, um, flux, things like that, where it's going to change the, the lighting on your computer system. Um, and those are things that help your eyes, uh, work smarter, not harder. Um, but they're not, you know, they're not necessarily taking away what your eyes are doing. And I think, um, it all leads to that sort of greater habituation of like being able to tolerate, you know, building that activity tolerance, regaining the skill so that you can function more, um, I want to say more independently, but it's like you can function more thoroughly with your like visual vestibular system. Yeah, really good points there. And also, um, when we think of, again, I'll draw back to what I know, vestibular rehab, it's not necessarily that, or in order to determine what program is appropriate for this person, we're going to look at, okay, are we bringing on some symptoms, but it's not too much too fast? If we're not doing any, if we're not creating any symptoms, then the task that we're giving them is probably too simple and it's not really going to help them. Is it the same theory in vision rehab where we want them to be a little bit uncomfortable, but not so uncomfortable that they're down for the count the rest of the day? I sort of explain it that it's like, okay to feel the discomfort. Um, it's telling, you know, it's your, your eyes telling your brain, it's sort of, it's, it's okay. Like you, you're having a response and what we want them to do is develop the skill to um, process that response in the right way. Um, so I guess, yes. Um, I think, um, you know, that's not like necessarily the focus of our, you know, treatment, uh, but it's certainly, I'd say like a byproduct, right? So we're working on that, the skill, the skill might like result in some of those symptoms. Um, but yeah, a symptoms, a symptom is okay. And it's honestly expected. Sometimes, um, we want them to learn how to sort of process it appropriately. Liz, I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, if you ask some of my patients, they would say, oh, yeah, she definitely <laughs> pushes me to a point where I feel uncomfortable. Um, and I do try initially with all of the exercises, as these are sort of abstract and we are bringing on symptoms. I don't want to scare a person from actually doing the exercises. So I do try to start with something that they're successful with. Um, I work an outpatient, so a lot of what we give them, as I'm sure in vestibular, is like a home program. And so, you know, when we see them weekly or twice a week, I'm able to give them something initially that they're successful with. They're, they're still working on the skill. We're still working on the accuracy, but it may not be tipping the scales. I also want them to appreciate what we're doing. Um, some of the exercises require, you know, like a visual feedback response. And they need to understand that because that's, it's not something we learn or we know that's even happening. You know, our vision develops when we're babies and when we're, you know, going through our developmental milestones, we're not aware of how our vision is developing or working. And so this is very foreign for people. So I do try to give them something that they're successful with so that they do come back. And then, you know, you do have to push them um, because as long as they can do it and they can achieve what we're trying to achieve, uh, maybe I'll reduce repetitions, um, tell them to do it in different planes. Like I said, I'll put them in supine. I'll put them in a supported sitting position. We'll do two repetitions and then go ahead and take a break. Um, and that's okay as long as we're, you know, building up their endurance. Yeah, really Again, really good points there. I love the fact that you want the patient to be successful. You don't want to scare them off and have them never do any of the exercises again. That's great. But also, you're right. You know, you're giving things that will likely bring on some symptoms, and that's okay. I always like to reiterate to my patients that 
your feedback is what's going to guide my next avenue. If it's, you know, if you're telling me that was too much, then we're going to pull the reins back a little bit. If you're telling me, oh, I killed that. That was good. In two days, I felt great, you know, doing that same activity. Then we're going to push it a little bit more. So yeah, lots of similarities between the two rehabs, both vision and vestibular. Now, when it comes to vestibular diagnoses specifically, are there certain diagnoses that you're seeing more often in vision rehab? I'd say the majority of uh, diagnoses that I see are like um, central issues. So, you know, from concussion, um, so any sort of vestibular dis dysfunction from a concussion, um, I do see a lot of 3PD and, you know, um, it'll listen, obviously we've worked together a long time um, and I'm really lucky to work with really good uh, vestibular therapists that we do get to collaborate a lot. And so that's probably too why some of our treatment plans <laughs> follow the same trajectory um, is that we sort of learn and feed off each other. But I would say um, those are when there's this sort of visual vestibular mismatch and they're experiencing symptoms from that mismatch, I see probably more of the central disorders. I do see some of the peripheral disorders as well. I mean, but usually, I don't have any statistics truly, but just anecdotally, it, a lot of times I get that information from their visual history. There was something that was there pre-morbid and they may never have known um, that it was their vision, looking at someone's vision even now is not the norm um, when they're looking I mean, people look at their acuity and they have prescriptions and corrective lenses, but how the eyes are working together, how your brain is processing what, you know, the visual information coming in, your depth perception, that stuff was not, it, it just wasn't diagnosed. Um, they're finding a lot of, you know, in kids, a lot of these learning disabilities or these disorders that are, have been diagnosed and, and you know, maybe being put on medications are actually visual issues. The symptomology of some of the visual deficits, um, you know, for tracking, the symptoms are almost the same um, as ADHD and dyslexia. So, you know, we're finding that perhaps there was a visual, an underlying visual dysfunction or, or weakness in that system prior to the onset of a vestibular injury or, or dysfunction. And so once they're experiencing that, they're trying, like I said before, they're trying to rely on a visual system that was never strong to begin with. And they may never have known that. Um, but through our screening and, you know, if we need to refer to, you know, a, a higher specialty, we will do that to identify maybe there was something there always. How about migraine? Yes, vestibular migraine and just migraine in general. We do see a lot. You're right. Absolutely. And then when we, when it comes to prognosis, so in the vestibular rehab world, we kind of um, generally speaking, usually diagnoses that are more central related take longer than peripheral disorders. Is that similar? Does that follow the same track again in vision rehab? Or what, what time frame are you looking at typically for patients? Yeah, I would say it's, it's very similar in that, um, you know, the symptoms of those central disorders seem to linger a little bit more than the peripheral ones. And so, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say, obviously everybody is different. Um, you know, traditionally or historically, we would see people for about three months, about once a week. Um, we've changed a little bit of that, um, the way we're doing things. And we now see people a little more frequently for less time. And I have found that patients are getting better in a shorter amount of time, which is really kind of nice. Um, but they definitely have some prolonged symptoms. So some of those concussion or the 3PD, I would say, you know, three months plus sometimes. I agree. I think, um, you know, as, you know, of course, there's certain diagnoses that do kind of require a little bit more attention and care and sort of, um, you know, slower progression. Um, but there are, you know, sometimes there's a case that just kind of 
not shocks you, but they're, you know, they really pick up their eyes just needed sort of um, to be put back on the right track, right? Um, and they, you know, they really respond well to the treatment plan, to the exercises, um, and they really don't need as much. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's, you know, in a way it's case by case, um, but, you know, just, you know, kind of echoing what Liz said, it is, you know, a little bit more, um, you know, you could have patients on for a little bit longer, um, depending on the diagnosis, but, you know, a little bit shorter depending. It, it, it really is. Yeah. I always hate that question when I'm screening a patient to see if I'm a good fit for their care or if balancing act is a good fit for their care. And inevitably they will ask me, well, how long do you think I'll have to see you? And I'm like, I don't know. But generally speaking, <laughs> it's a very hard question to answer. Now, in much of this discussion, we've been talking about the, the, crossing between at least our two fields. So we know that a multidisciplinary approach exists. Can you tell me what percentage of patients would you say are only being seen for vision rehab versus what percentage are seeing multidisciplines, whether it's just vestibular rehab in addition, or maybe psych two or something else? So I'd say vision, you, you know, it really, it really depends on who they see first. Um, I think that vision works really well in conjunction with other disciplines, um, whether, you know, it's vestibular rehab or uh, vestibular psychology. Um, you know, I think that we really rely on our, um, you know, interdisciplinary colleagues um, because the systems are so interrelated, it's kind of difficult to treat one without at least looking at the other um, and ensuring that, you know, it's, you know, finely tuned, if you will. Um, I think that sometimes we are the start of the journey, um, but sometimes we're also the middle of the journey and vice versa. So I think that often we have patients that they've gone through vestibular rehab and we see them a few months down the road. Um, or we see them first in vision rehab and we're like, you know what, something's just not, you know, that's much more vestibular in nature. You know, they're really complaining about balance or really that visual processing with like multi, lots of stimuli um, and different kinds of stimuli. And then we know that's, that's time to refer this to a different specialty. Um, so uh, with that said, I, I, I'd say there's probably a small percentage of this sort of visual vestibular patient that is only seeing vision rehab, um, if at all. Um, and if they are only seeing vision rehab, chances are I'm probably recommending they at least see a vestibular therapist for an evaluation anyway. Yeah, I think, I mean, we've been very fortunate to have vestibular literally next door. Um, and so definitely we've been able to, you know, kind of pass patients back and forth to make sure that they're getting the services that they need from that visual vestibular patient. Yeah, I would say almost next to none are we seeing them alone unless they can't tolerate vestibular therapy at the time and they need to work to create um, stable binocular vision in order to be able to even participate in vestibular therapy. Um, and so, you know, occasionally if we're not overlapping, we're usually piggybacking off each other. Um, so I would say almost probably very few times are we seeing a vestibular patient with, without having the patient had had some sort of vestibular treatment or some sort of medication or they, they're being followed by, you know, a neurotologist or somebody who's working with them to manage their symptoms from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. And again, yes, you work in a very unique and beneficial environment for the patient where you have multiple disciplines. There are some places in the world where they're lucky if they find someone who's even heard of their vestibular system close by or has heard of looking at their vision and how it's working as a whole versus just their acuity. So yeah, very lucky for those folks in the tri-county area of New York State uh, to have both so close by. When we think about function and we think about um, really, has this patient improved? So one of my favorite things to look at is at the start of care, I'm going to ask the patient to give me something that I can look back 
at the end of our time or mid course and say, oh, yes, you wanted to be able to go to the grocery store or target on a Saturday afternoon and be in there for 30 minutes? Are you able to do that? Yes, you can. What other functional outcomes are we looking at for these patients in vision rehab aside from their subjective reports that they're telling you? So I'll start. So most of our, um, most I, of just wanna, I just want to explain one thing. We, we're <laughs> muting in between. And so everyone's looking at each other like, who's going to take this answer? Who's going to take this answer? <laughs> but in, take it away. So with the screening tools that Liz really nicely laid out for us, many of them are actually our outcome measures that we build into our short and long-term goals for each patient. So um, the CIS, which is the Convergence Insufficiency Symptom Survey, is, is a self-reported um, questionnaire. It's a, a patient-reported outcome. However, it is nice to kind of use that as a look at this number, how it's decreased since you started this treatment plan with us. Um, the INSUCO, which looks at the um, ocular motor skills of pursuits and saccades, is built, there's four components for each skill. Um, and within that, there's a five point rating scale that you can kind of really break down each component of each skill to um, build a goal on. Um, and that's, um, you know, the accuracy, their ability to do it. And then there are the, the, the person's ability or if they have to recruit another system, like their head moving or their body moving. And you can really kind of use those as outcome measures. Um, to see how the patients progress over time. Um, we utilize convergence norms. So um, the current norm is five to 10 centimeters. Um, and so we can use that as a, a measuring point, whether or not they kind of are closer to that norm, um, which is the goal, of course. Um, and then the, the developmental eye movement uh, score, um, we, you know, you can utilize either the vertical score, the horizontal score, or um, the the ratio scores. And then um, accommodation is also another um, one of the assessments that we do, and we can kind of look. We get a hard number for that as well. So um, again, ours is a screening, but we're using those screening tools, um, and built into that screening tool, they're essentially outcome measures. Um, that are guiding sort of our reevaluations of their progress and how they're doing with their treatments. So for me, you know, some of those things sounded foreign, right? I have no idea. And for our patient audience, probably that's foreign too. But I will say that it is nice to have a quantification of progress sometimes because you might not feel as a patient week to week. You might not be able to see the differences or really feel the differences, especially every day. You might still be having some bad days, but when we retest these things and we can see it on paper with our examination and evaluation tools, it's really kind of a nice, like, yes, I am getting better. It's like a nice little cheerleader for you. Or sometimes, you know, it does happen where it's the opposite and maybe you need to go down a different avenue of treatment, or maybe vision rehab is not the appropriate thing for you at that time. Right. And we're also, you know, we're always looking at function as well. A lot of return to school or return to work or um, oftentimes goals revolve around reading or device use and, and their tolerance. How long can you do it? How many intervals can you do throughout the day um, as we're building up? So for sure, there's definitely more, you know, functional things, but I do like, I do think people, it's, it's really helpful to appreciate their progress when you look back and you're like, well, you felt this awful when you first saw me and maybe you're not a hundred percent better, but you're 50% better than you were when we started. And that is a nice thing for people to recognize. Agreed. Agreed. And it's rewarding as the therapist too. Like you're just as excited for the patient so that's why we're in this field, to help people. One of the questions we get a lot in vestibular rehab is, especially patients with migraine, I would say, is what can I do about my light sensitivity? So talk to us a little bit about maybe um, lifestyle modifications that you recommend, or if there's any interventions. Yeah, so unfortunately, there's 
not a whole lot in the literature about, you know, as far as therapy or treatment for light sensitivity. So modifications as things like um, tinted lenses, either for your correction or on a screen, dimming the brightness, um, reducing overhead lighting, using natural lighting, um, things like that are absolutely, you know, we encourage for people to be able to function. The sort of, I think out there really in the literature, they suggest is more of like an exposure therapy to, um, to get comfortable again with light. So, you know, somebody, and I'm sure you've had patients that come in and they have these darkened sunglasses on and they will not take them off and they don't want to take them off. And sometimes it's a matter of dimming the, the lights in your office or your space um, and having them, you know, start with two minutes taking the lenses off and then they can put them back on. And then maybe next time it's five minutes and you can kind of build up that way. Um, and obviously eventually progressing them to, you know, natural light, um, not using the lenses at all, reducing the brightness or increasing the brightness on their screens, things of that nature. So that's my bet. Those are my best tips for light sensitivity. It's a tough one. It unfortunately seems to be one of these lingering symptoms, um, even after everything else seems to get better. Um, and the symptoms from other issues resolve light sensitivity I have found um, seems to take a little bit longer to really truly improve, and I think that's for that reason. You really, it's a very slow progression. You have to kind of expose yourself to light over time and get your brain to readjust to the light. I often explain to patients that um, it's like the movie theater effect, right? If you go see a movie. Um, at two o'clock in the afternoon and then you walk outside and you're like, whoa, all this brightness, you know, that's really, you're just kind of making it worse. Um, so we try to encourage patients to avoid that, that intervention that Liz was saying, you know, with like wearing really dark tinted lenses and really blocking out the light. Like light, I tried to explain is not bad. It's just, we have to digest it better or find a better way of sort of processing it. So um, one thing I've done too with patients is, um, not only dimming the light on their screens, but actually changing some of the color filters or like the ways, you know, like, um, you know, the iPhone and most of, most of our smartphones have that reverse technology now where you can have a black screen with, with white writing, um, many systems on, um, there's a lot of plugins on the internet, like on, on Google Chrome, on, um, even on Firefox, they're, 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 you're allowed to add something onto your computer system that can kind of change your screen for you so that you're still, you know, accessing things, but, you know, you're doing it in a progressive way um, and you're not wearing sunglasses 24-7, uh, um, which is something we definitely don't recommend. Um, it's definitely that sort of progressive exposure um, and always kind of just allowing yourself to feel the symptom, process the symptom, and kind of redevelop the mechanism to tolerate the symptom. Yeah, thank you for that. It's, uh, again, the same when it comes to vestibular rehab. If a patient doesn't want to move and they just stay still all the time, when they do move, it's going to be way worse than what it would have been if they just little by little got acclimated and desensitized to the movement. So same thing with light. And Thank you for sharing that so eloquently. That is what I tell my patients, but I'm glad that you two feel the same way. Now, that wraps it up in terms of the questions that I had. Is there anything either of you wanted to share? So I just wanted you guys to know, I mean, we had talked a little bit before about how therapists, you know, especially occupational therapists can learn a little bit more about neurological vision and, and how it relates to your practice. And so there are tons of continuing education um, seminars out there. Historically, a lot of the vision ones had been geared towards pediatrics. And I'd say in the last five or so years, um, the they really has been more of a focus on the adult populations as well. And so I encourage you to look for those. Um, I personally did actually um, 
put out a course last September, which is available on demand through um, Gold Standard Seminars, www.goldstandardseminars.com. Um, there's a vision course for treatment, for screening and treatment, and then there's a vision and um, concussion course. So if you're interested in learning more about it, I encourage you to, you know, do a search, try to find some more information out there. There really is a ton of resources. And like Abby said before, we're kind of, we've been lucky to live in this bubble where we have each other, but she's doing an incredible service to get this information out to anyone and everyone who will listen because I will talk anyone's ear off about it. I think it's so important. Vision is a foundational skill. And without it, all of the other systems don't work quite as well. So um, good luck. Mic drop. <laughs> so also I want to share with you audience that both Liz and Kellyanne agreed to give us their contact info. So if there's any questions or comments or you want to tell them how much you loved hearing from them today, we'll put their contact information in the show notes. Liz and Kellyanne, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's so nice to see you both again. I think this is the first time I've seen you both at the same time. And I mean, it's been years, it's at least five years. So thank you so much for joining us on the show and thank you to our listeners. We'll see you next time. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources, including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and beep and BB treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.